Hey folks, Jack Spirigo here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 556. It is November 22nd, 2010. We are in a short week of shows this week. We will have no show on uh, Thursday or Friday. Taking time off for the Thanksgiving holiday to spend with my family, I suggest you do the same. The Wednesday show will be our annual survivalist look at Thanksgiving with some new stuff spliced in at the beginning and the end. But basically, it'll be the old show rebroadcast. Um, I like making that a tradition. I'll, there's a certain certain days I like to do things like that. Notably are the Veterans Day show, uh, the Thanksgiving show, and the Christmas show. Uh, I think that maybe I'll redo the Christmas show this year like I did the Veterans Day show. The Thanksgiving show, it's going to be hard-pressed to ever redo that one. I just think it came out too perfect to mess with it. Um, other than that, though, I got some interesting stuff coming up for you guys. I want to let you know about here in the beginning of the, the show notes so you don't skip over them like some of you do. Um, number one, on Wednesday, I will be on the radio in Austin between 3 and 4 o'clock. I do not know if this radio station has like a podcast thing where you can listen after. Of course, I'll put a link uh, after it happens, if so. But between 3 and 4 o'clock, I will be on 98.9 FM with Live Free Austin, and uh, that should be cool. So if you happen to be in the Austin area, you can check that out, check their show out. Uh, next up, I want to uh, let you guys know I have some interviews coming up. I have one coming up that we will air tomorrow. Uh, Chef Keith Snow, who was on to talk about harvest eating before, will be coming back on to talk about and this will be a fun show. Uh, I don't know how much survivalism it'll be other than the fact that he'll probably talk about a lot of things you grow in your garden. We're going to talk about cooking interesting things for Thanksgiving. I thought that would be cool to do. Wednesday we'll do our Thanksgiving show. And then next week, it'll probably be Tuesday, I've got a listener out there that's doing some really cool things with containers. He's not going to reveal everything he's doing. I'm talking about the great big giant shipping containers, the ones that look like a truck, uh, you know, the trailer part of a truck. Uh, but he's going to be on to talk about how you bury them. Uh, and doing a lot of other things with them, and about prepping in general and having a low-profile area for your bug-out location. Um, it's pretty cool what he's doing, and he's going to share uh, how to do it all, not necessarily what he's doing or where he's doing it at. He wants to keep some, uh, you know, some level of anonymity here. Uh, but he is going to tell you everything you need to know so that you can start out with one container and make your project as big or as small as you would like. I think that's going to be a great show. That'll be Tuesday next week. So I just wanted you guys to know I am reaching out, trying to find people, trying to do things for you guys that are a little bit more involved and a little bit more interesting with interviews rather than just me always monologuing everything. Next, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one, Emergency Essentials. Uh, what a great company. I mean, I was so glad to bring them on as a sponsor. They have an incredible assortment of, you know, pre-stored food, a lot of other great emergency supplies. Been around forever. They're one of those companies where they still actually send out a real catalog, you know, a paper catalog you can browse through. Make sure if nothing else you get to their website and request a catalog from them. You'll get it a couple times a year. And uh, I know I always look forward to getting my emergency essentials catalog so I can browse through and see the new stuff that they have. Absolutely outstanding assortment of things like Mountain House, Provided Pantry, MREs, anything from a single case or a single can to a three-month, six-month, or one-year supply of food. Check out Emergency Essentials, folks. I'm telling you what, they are a great supporter of the show, and we're really glad to have them on board. Next up today is BulkAmmo.com, another one of our newer sponsors. Um, I mean, these guys are doing so much. I want you to realize there's a contest out right now where all you have to do is go visit their, their site. I'll put a link in today's show notes so you know what to do. And basically, you go to Facebook or Twitter and follow them and send them an email. Let them know you did that, and you get in the drawing. Uh, and if you have a blog, you can get in the drawing a second time by blogging about them and putting a link to them in your in your blog. All the information's on this little landing page they put together. And the winner of that contest gets 500 rounds of ammunition in a free ammo can. For, you know, you're free, and it's like five different calibers. Take your pick of which one you want, and they're the you know the common ones: nine millimeter, forty-five, two, two, three, that kind of stuff. Um, and on top of that, if you're in the MSB, they're giving away a free ammo can for all purchases over two hundred bucks. Um, that's a lot for a new sponsor to be doing so early and so quick off the bat. So uh, you got till November thirtieth on the contest. Make sure you get entered in it. 
Um, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts to about 25 different supporting vendors. Some of them are sponsors. Some of them are uh, companies that we simply didn't have room to allow in as a sponsor because we have a limited sponsor inventory. But yeah, there's 25 that give discounts. I read them off last week. You get about $100 worth of free ebooks. It's a great deal. And really what it comes down to, you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. Last but not least, I'm going to be talking to Sis Wolf, uh, the long-awaited AOCS Copper Rounds, the TSP Copper Coins. We should have those in the store for you to pre-order this week. It looks like they won't ship till January, though. Um, it's just a, a copper supply issue right now. Copper is hard to get your hands on, especially um, you know bullion grade, beautifully uh, prepared copper for uh, you know proof quality coin like we're putting together here with the AOCS uh, TSP Copper rounds. But we should have them in the store for pre-orders uh, this week sometime. And with that, uh, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which again, is, since it's Monday, your questions, your, your ideas, your things you want me to comment about, articles you've sent me, all kinds of good stuff like that. Uh, before I get into the main topic today and start taking questions, there is one more thing I have to tell you. I almost forgot, and I, I can't not do this. Uh, I feel it's an important thing you guys need to know. I want you to understand I'm not calling for a war. I'm not calling for a boycott. I'm not asking you to do anything other than whatever you think you need to do with this little piece of information. Uh, recently, I started looking for next year where I could advertise the Survival Podcast. And one site that I've been extremely friendly towards and I've sent tons of traffic to and I've cited their articles over and over again and I've defended their, their authors when people have said they're crackpots is naturalnews.com. And I've been a big supporter and I've sent them a ton of traffic. Well, I looked at their site, I looked at some of the stuff being said on there and advertised. I thought this would be a good place to advertise. They got, they got a lot of traffic. Maybe they could help me reach more people. So I applied as an advertiser. I was rejected. I am not upset over being rejected. I want to be very clear about that. Uh, I reject advertisers all the time because they don't fit the profile of the show. If that's why I was rejected, fine. But they sent me their little synopsis of why they rejected me. And it was their policy, and it said things like they don't, you can't have like sell food that has nitrites and nitrates in it and stuff like that. And I thought that's consistent with their brand. Maybe they went through my other, you know, I don't sell anything like that, but my sponsors, you know, maybe Mountain House uses something that they're not comfortable with or whatever. But I kept reading it. And one thing you absolutely cannot have and be on their site is anything related to firearms. That's right, no guns. Natural news, as far as I'm concerned, there ain't any gun. How does this differ from something like PayPal and eBay, which I kind of let get by with this? Those companies take money from the seller to the buyer and transfer a product. They have both stated that it's a legal liability issue. Some people accept that, some people don't. I don't like it, but I give them a pass. Natural News is doing it for ideological reasons. Point blank. And I know that for a fact based on feedback that I've been given um, through an intermediary. And I'll leave it at that. So Natural News will not allow anybody to advertise on their site if they have firearms content on their site. And they lump firearms in with things like pornography and online gambling. So you do what you want with that. You let people know about it however you want to. Do not think that I'm saying don't ever go there. You do what you want. All right. It, just the facts are the facts are the facts. All I'm going to do is I'm never going to mention them again. I'm never going to cite their articles again. And if I need information about a topic that someone like Natural News would cover, I will get the information and I will cite it from a different source. And that's it. Let's go ahead and now let's take that first question. And just a tiny disclaimer here. Uh, I'm about to talk about something where I'm going to get a little bit mad and a little bit peed off and you might want to not let the little kids listen to this one uh, I don't usually even bother to say that because you know the content of my show it's, a, and it's an adult show, you choose whether your kids listen to it or not, you explain it as they want but I'm going to get a little bit upset here and I'm going to say some things that some people are not going to see graphic at all and some are going to see as graphic but this is stuff that's on Fox News folks it's just my take on it this first one comes from a guy named Mike and uh, I was going to save it till the end because this one came in last night so I generally do these kind of in the order received as I, as I call through them. And uh, don't really know why I do. I just do. And uh, But I decided I had to do this one first because this one's got me pissed off. And I don't want to end the show on a big rant today. I'm going to try not to rant on this right now because I can't completely confirm this is true. But it sure looks to be true. And 
this is about the TSA stuff, and I haven't said anything about the TSA and the naked body scanners and all the revolting that's going on about it. I'm very happy to see the American public saying, you know what, putting your hands into our pants and feeling our junk, you're going too far. Uh, but I, I've, I've stayed out of it because it's not really a survival topic. It's a liberty topic, but it's not a survival topic. But when we start to go to a point where we're going to lose our liberty, not to the point of if you go to the airport, you're going to have to have somebody either looking at you naked through a scanner and radiating your body and feeling your junk if you don't want that done. But if you refuse, instead of not letting you get on a plane, they're going to put you in jail? Now we're into a point of liberty where I've got to talk about it. So I'm going to read this little short article to you. And if your blood's not boiling at the end of it, I don't know what to say. I really don't. TSA, travelers who refuse scanning can't leave will be fined. Faced with the prospect of large numbers of people refusing the invasive screening measures they've implemented this holiday season, the TSA is hoping to fight back with threats of fine and arrest. Once a person submits to the screening process, they cannot just decide to leave, warned Sari Sari, Coserts, the TSA spokesperson. TSA officials say anyone refusing both the full body scanners and the enhanced pat-down procedures will be taken into custody. Once their detainees will not be barred from flying, but will be held indefinitely as a suspected terrorist, face fines up to $11,000 and may also be turned over to local police. One sheriff's office said they were already preparing to handle large numbers of detainees and plan to treat them as terror suspects held until they are convinced they don't pose a terror threat. The TSA genital pat-downs have led to threats from some local prosecutors to charge them with sexual assault, but TSA has shrugged off the public outcry over the measures and seems to be more intent on ever than on cowering the public into submission. Too far. Period. Okay? I don't get political here, and I don't get into temporal issues that much, but this one, too far. It's time that we really get outraged about this. Okay, it's one thing when we're both, you know, standing each other off and we're calling on the government to intervene and at least give the process a chance to work. No, this is too far. So basically what this is saying is if I go through airport screening and they decide to naked body scan me and radiate my body, I say no. And they say, okay, fine, then we're going to fill your junk up. We're going to get underneath you and grab your testicles, buddy, and squeeze them and make sure you're not hiding a, a bomb, you know, in your taint region. I that. You know what? And I say, you know what? I'm not doing that either. The hell with it. I'm not going to fly. Now they're going to take me into custody, treat me as a terrorist, and hold me indefinitely until they're, they, 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 they're, they're sure I don't pose a terrorist threat? Okay, too far. And this is a slow week, and I know you don't want to do it, but if you're as outraged, only if you're outraged by this. If, you're not, if you think this is okay, fine, don't do it. If you're outraged by this... Get on the phone this week to your senators and your congress cloud and tell them you guys better do something. You guys better step in. I don't care if it's somebody on the way out the door. You let them know. You want something done about this. For a lot of us, they're going to be here. The same guy's going to be coming back. Let them know. Instead of doing all this crap in the lame duck session, screwing us over, that you want something done about this. I'm sorry if I got too vulgar there or too upset or too angry, but this, this, this is too much. This is too much. And I feel like right now, we've got the quasi-government organizations, the people that are really the problem, the fascist part of our nation, drawing a line in the sand and saying, we're going to push you past this line. And I feel like the American people are finally starting to say, no, we're not going past the line. You see why I did this early on? Um, I just wanted you to know, I'm going to let this go. And uh, from here, we're going to move on to hopefully... Some happier topics. Here we go with a much easier one. Um, John says, good day. Can I repack any dry goods into Mylar plus O2 absorbers for longer term storage? I see tons of info on storing grains, beans, rice, etc. But what I really want is stores Fruit Loops, saltine crackers, chocolate bars, and other treats along with whey protein powder. I have basics. I want some fun stuff in there too. Will repackaging this uh, way extend the shelf life beyond the stated expiration date? Thank you, John. Um, in California. Um, yeah, no, sort of, kind of, maybe. Um, it's not going to make them last five to ten years. If you look at anything like you're talking about, I mean, first of all, let's look at what you're looking at. <clears throat> saltine crackers. Pretty good storage life in and of themselves. Saltine crackers, I would say that doesn't need to be in that long-term storage bucket. Build that as part of your deep pantry. Those things have, you know... 
Those things will last multiple years. That was there when everybody thought they were going to live on saltines. Seriously, back during the Cold War, uh, that's what everybody thought they were going to run down in their uh, basement and live on until uh, the radiation subsided with saltines. So saltines have a good long shelf life in the first place, so just keep a large stockpile of them, make them part of your rotational pantry. And then other things like Fruit Loops and chocolate bars, you could do that too. Now, something like a, a Fruit Loop cereal, let me first give you my disclaimer, I don't think you should be eating Fruit Loops uh, in any of these cereals that are made up with all the high fructose corn syrup and all the preservatives, but if you want to eat it, you want to eat it, that's fine. If you package that stuff in Mylar with O2 absorbers, will extend the shelf life. Yes, how long? I don't know. I just don't know. And I, I'm not going to tell you, well, if, it, if the shelf life is one year on the box from right now or six months from the box right now, it's going to add 50% or 80% more because I'm not going to put myself in that kind of a risk. I will tell you, it certainly will. When it comes to storing any food long term, the things that are the enemy are heat, light, and oxygen. You can control the heat by keeping it inside a house and somewhere environmentally controlled. You control the light with Mylar and with other packaging methods like food-grade buckets. And then you control the oxygen level with the O2 absorbers. That's got to extend the life. I just don't know how long. So I think that the majority of stuff like that is better suited when you go to the store and you have that great big stack of Fruit Loop boxes Stick your bony arm way to the back and get the last box when they've fronted all the items up and, you know, annoy the stocking person. But that box back there is going to have the longest storage life. And I would recommend more that the stuff like saltines and cereals and stuff like that, you make part of your rotational pantry, your everyday eat what you store, store what you eat. But if you wanted to bulk pack it, it certainly can't hurt. And some of the generic versions, they come in the great big bags. It's already kind of loose packed. You know, if you pack that up into a Mylar, now you're going to have to be careful with, you know, overuse of O2. Maybe you could get some crushing action as that Mylar kind of shrinks up around it. But you could do it, just don't depend on it to last, you know, for five years. I just don't see it lasting that long for you. So you're going to have to look at a situation, maybe you do gamma seal lids, and you do rotation out of your long-term buckets. And then I think the biggest reason you're putting them into the buckets is to make them portable if you have to leave and protected beyond just sitting in a box in your cupboard. So it's not really about long-term storage. Maybe you'll get a little bit of longevity out of it. And here's where it really comes to bear. If you end up in a situation where you start rationing your food and you have some of it put away that way, that would be the last stuff you eat. And if it goes beyond your expiration date, but there is no other food and you're having to rely on it, I would certainly eat it at that point. I would just, once any food has kind of gone off into the realm of, I'm not sure, you got to have to act like a rat. I, I don't know if many people know this, but the reason a rat is so hard to poison is rats, when they come across a food they've never eaten before, and they want to eat it, they eat a very small part of it. And if it makes them sick, they never touch that food again. So you have to, when a, with a rat poison, you have to either put the poison into a food that are accustomed to eating and mask it to the point where they don't know there's anything different, or you have to use a toxin that's so toxic that even that small amount results in death. And you have to act like a rat with food like that. You eat a very small amount of it, and you wait, and do I feel any kind of illness or sickness? Or Because, yeah, it's not 100%, but you got to do something. you got to eat. you got this food in front of you. So that's just one way to think about it. But overall, again, I would stick to most of those things being in the deep pantry, and your long-term storage items are items that are more uh, suited to that. But if anybody has long-term stored stuff like this, let us know about it. Let us know in the show notes. Let's help everybody out. Let's take another question. This one's just a really cool, inspirational email I wanted to read you guys um, from a listener. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read quite a bit of it, though. Jack, and this is from a guy named Scott. Scott says, found your podcast about a year and a half ago, about six months after I started prepping. Wish I had found it sooner. I don't post much on the forums. I'd rather learn from them, from others as a lurker. But I wanted to drop you a note and tell you about a very special meal I made tonight. You've been talking lately about cooking on a couple of podcasts. I took it to heart. Tonight I made dinner with almost all stuff I harvested myself and did most of it while holding my four-day-old four son. I wanted to share with him, uh, share this with him, even though he will never remember. Never too young to get them thinking. As for the meal, I made venison tenderloin roast rubbed with other herbs, or rub, rubbed with herbs I grew in my garden, uh, and dried my Excalibur dehydrator. Thanks, to dehi thanks for the dehydrate store show. Cooked it uh, in an oven, open fire. 
hooked it over an open flyer of white oak, seared directly over the coals first, and then finished on indirect heat. Only salt and pepper were not from me. The deer was a doe I shot at the beginning of both season in Kentucky. I also baked potatoes from the garden on the same fire, boiled carrots from the garden this year. Uh, butter and brown sugar did come from the store. I made homemade bread and my own garlic butter to put on it. Garlic was from the garden. Salad was straight out of hot boxes. Uh, I had four kinds of lettuce, two kinds of spinach, plus carrots and baby Swiss chard. I harvested some a bit early, might regret it later, but it was a special meal. What a great meal, and most of it was made from off-grid sources. The best part was sharing it with my new son, born on Tuesday at 12.19 a.m. I want to raise him with the right values and skills because God knows he will need them in his lifetime. The only thing that would have made the meal better would have been a bottle of homebrew. I have a kit for that on my Christmas wish list. And I'll leave the rest of the email that was kind of personal to me off-air, but I wanted to share with you what some of your fellow listeners are doing. And I think that is probably one of the coolest emails I've ever gotten. It'll be one of those I put in the special folder where when I wonder if I'm really making an impact, I stop and I'll read it. And uh, so thank you for that very much, Scott, for sharing that with me. Um, and I want you guys to think about that when we bring Keith Snow in tomorrow to talk about using things from your garden in your backyard for Thanksgiving. Try to make sure that at least one or two things on that table for Thanksgiving this year, if you have the opportunity anyway, came from that backyard. It'll matter. It's part of learning to live from your own production. Uh, let's go on to the next one. Uh, for our soldiers that listen to TSP, uh, this is from a guy, uh, Fun Flight is in his email. He didn't leave a first name at all, so I can't give you his first name. Do you have any info for a way to send Christmas stuff to our troops in that a-hole of a world called the Middle East? We want to send some real stuff they are begging for. Anything they aren't supplied with that might keep someone's butt alive. Uh, anything that might make it more bearable for them. Thanks for your work. Um, I've done things for... Uh, soldiers for the last two years. And I have to say that every single time we did it, or two times we did it, it was great, it worked, we helped a lot of people, but there were snags and hiccups and things that, that made things a little bit more difficult because I'm not really logistically set up to manage something like that. So over the past month, wanting to announce something before Thanksgiving to support the soldiers this year, I looked at every organization that I could find that was doing that around the holidays, uh, and not just around the holidays, but around the year as well, because these guys need support from us all the time, guys. They really do, uh, especially now, but, but all the time. And the organization that I've chosen to kind of recommend this year that you use is AnySoldier.com. AnySoldier.com lets you actually... Uh, you can send kind of generic stuff, or you can actually find someone that's asking for help with specific things that they want and send it directly to them. And they're a great organization. They've been around for longer than the Survival Podcast. Uh, they're completely legitimate. I mean, these guys are really just trying to help folks. Uh, they're not trying to skim some off the top or anything like that, and they're going to put you know, the, the most amount of your effort you can directly to helping soldiers overseas with your contributions around the holidays and, again, around the rest of the year. So that's what I'm going to recommend this year. And if you do send something to any soldier, uh, let them know when you do it that you heard about them and you're, they're part of being sponsored this year by the Survival Podcast because soldiers are very important to me, and I think this is a great thing for us to do. Uh, let's move on to another question. This uh, this comes from Chris, and this is an easy one. Uh, I've been listening to old shows all day, and I heard two different shows that discuss handling of food. One was a caller and asked a question about food for a bug-out bag, indicating you can just put food into vacuum packs, and it'll keep for a year. The other podcast discussed canning and said we had to go through a canning process with a pressure cooker canner. So if I can just put food in a vacuum-sealed bag, and it'll keep, why can't I use a canning jar and do the same thing? Uh, I'm learning a lot. Thank you. Uh, this is from Chris. Well, Chris, you can. Uh, you absolutely can take things like dehydrated vegetables, put them into a canning jar, throw a couple O2 absorbers in there, stick your canning lid on there, put your canning ring around it. It'll take up the o oxygen. And when you open that can, you'll actually hear a like a vacuum seal when you open that can. Uh, Tammy from Dehydrate the Store recommends this is a great way to store your dehydrated vegetables. Here's my issues with that. For the stuff that you have sitting on the shelf that you're going to cook with often, I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. I think you should do it. I do too. For the stuff that you're storing long term like that, um, I don't like it because what do we say our enemies to long term food storage are? Light, heat, oxygen. 
So, with the jars, as long as we keep them in a cool area, we have heat taken care of, we have oxygen taken care of, but we let the light in. So stuff that we're going to be using over the next year, year and a half with dehydrated vegetables, no problem. And some other things like grains. I mean, you can do anything in a jar that way, the way I just described. No problem to it whatsoever. Um, but anything beyond that, now we're looking at, you know, we're looking at a situation where the light is also a degrading factor. So we're better off with something like Mylar bags inside our, our, our uh, buckets. Or we're better off with something like the paint cans that I recommend that are phenolically lined with FDA-grade approved coating that I get from the carry company. I'm sure there's other places to get them, but that's where I order them from. And uh, they've worked very well for long-term storage because we're keeping the light out. And that is so important with long-term storage. Now, the other thing is, when we talk about the canning process, I don't think this is what you're asking, but I just want to be sure that you are. Um, if we're canning something like fresh green beans... Well, we're either going to can those with a canning process with a pressure canner and getting the heat to the right temperature to kill all pathogenic bacteria and anything else that could be on there that we don't want on there, like wild yeast or funguses that could grow and cause problems. We're going to let that jar cool and seal, and we're going to put it up on the shelf, and it's going to store for a year to two in, in that type of environment. And we're going to, for green beans, we're going to get a much fresher-tasting product than dehydrating a green bean. And not quite as fresh as if we eat it fresh or we flash freeze it, but we've got longevity. And, you know, some vegetables do very well dehydrated. Some, they're good for certain things. Like those green beans would be fine in a casserole or a soup or a stew. But if you want to sit down and eat a serving of green beans on the side of your plate, dehydrated green beans just don't kind of pull that one off. Or certain other things really kind of can. So we have to make that determination there. But what you have to understand is I can't go out to the garden. This just doesn't work. And again, I don't think you're asking this, but I just want to make sure. Throw green beans into a jar, toss some O2 absorbers in there, and put a lid on it. Uh, that's not going to help at all. They're going to go bad because they, they, they have all of the stuff on them uh, that's out there that hasn't been killed yet, like yeast and bacteria and things like that. They're going to begin a breakdown process. It's going to be in an oxygen-deprived environment, so it's going to be an anaerobic breakdown process, and we can get some really bad things that way. So canning and sealing with O2 absorbers, two totally different things. You can use the jars. One last thing on the jars, why I'm not as hip on them as I am like food buckets and vacuum seal packages or uh, paint cans or things like that. They're heavy relatively compared to a glass container of the same size. And glass will break where if I drop my, my paint can, all I'm going to do is get a dent in it. If I drop my bucket, it's going to bounce around and make noise. So they're not as durable for that. But for stuff that you're going to use in your general cooking, so I'm going to go and I'm going to add a handful of corn to this thing that I'm cooking, and the dehydrated corn's right there on the shelf, the bottles like that are great. That's also why I like for purchasing, I like to use Harmony House. Instead of big number 10 cans, I get these nice little plastic jugs, and I can throw my own O2 absorbers in there to help the storage life, and they're real convenient for taking some out. So good stuff, but two different processes. Uh, the next one... Uh, I'm going to read this to you because this is something I didn't know about. I'm going to have to learn more about it and maybe bring somebody on the show to talk about them. But this comes from uh, Horga. If I got your name right, Jorge? It might be Jorge. If I got your name wrong, sir, I'm sorry. It's best I can do. But I think that would be Jorge. Um, J-O-R-J-A. If I remember my Spanish right, that's Jorge. Again, if I got you wrong, sir, sorry. Uh, but he says, hey, Jack, today's listener question about heating options reminded me that I have not heard you mention masonry heaters and that maybe you're not aware of them. And I'll say right now, I'm not. Masonry heaters, a.k.a. Russian stoves or Finnish stoves, you get the just cold country, are an ancient design, super low-tech, super efficient way to heat with wood, no vents, no fans, just hot rocks radiating warmth. In my opinion, the healthiest kind of heating. Our house is made of square-hewn pine logs, six inches thick, and 1,600 square feet, 30 by 50 rectangle, with the heater roughly in the center. This is in southern Utah at 6,200 feet. And while it ain't Siberia, it gets plenty cold from late fall to early spring. On the coldest days, two fires, one morning and one evening, will keep us comfy. Not so cold days, just one. Total wood burned in any one 24-hour period is around 100 pounds. Uh, they'll burn anything from oak to cottonwood. First year I lived here, the house was heated with uh, construction scraps, a mixture of pine fir, a little Adler. We do have an electric toe kick heaters in the two bathrooms because due to their location, they don't get much of the radiated heat. These critters are heavy. They need their own footings and aren't something they could easily be retrofitted. 
but for new construction, they're a hot setup, pun intended. They're not cheap, way more expensive than a traditional fireplace to build, and obviously not for everybody. But we live in the mountains and have an unlimited access to, to free wood, so it was a no-brainer for us. Anyhow, you may want to consider one if and when you build your dream home in, on the Arkansas spread. There are several different brands. This is the one we have, and it's from Tempest. And uh, the rest is kind of like some thank you stuff, so I'll leave that out. So I'll put a link to uh, to this website where he got his snow from. I'll have to do more research before I talk about them because, folks, I just have never heard of these Russian or Finnish stoves. But they sound really cool, and uh, if you have experience with them, chime in in the show notes. And if you don't, now you know something new. Remember, I try to make sure you learn at least one thing every day on the Survival Podcast. I bet for a lot of you, that was at least one thing you've learned today. Let's go ahead and take another one. Here's an interesting one. Um, uh, says This is from Sean. She says, Jack, ever seen any of these caliber adapters for shotguns? Apparently, the, you shoot 22, 38, or smaller gauge shot shells in a 12 gauge. The tinker in me is in intrigued, but I'm very skeptical. I can understand how it would work, ignite and fire, but wouldn't a tumble, a 22 tumbling down a smoothbore 12 gauge tube be so inaccurate that it couldn't be useful? Could this even hit a 12 inch target at 10 yards? Am I missing something? Um, let's look at this in two different spaces. Let's look at this from one, the adapter shooting the 22 or the 38 special, and then let's examine the adapter that lets you shoot uh, 20 gauge and a 12 gauge. Because they're entirely different animals in my opinion. First a disclaimer, I have ever, never actually fired one of the 22 or 38 caliber uh, shotgun adapters in a 12 gauge or 20 gauge or anything else like that. But my view is that Sean is close but not totally correct. I don't see the 22 or the 38 tumbling down uh, the bore. Basically what you've got with this adapter is a little small pistol barrel. And I think that they impart spin onto the round. So you're going to get some stabilization, and it's going to be aligned with the center of the bore because the shell's designed to align that way, so the shell adapter is going to be aligned that way. And as far as firing it through the bore of your shotgun without damaging it, I don't see that being a problem. I think it's going to work. Accuracy. Um, you're taking a shotgun designed to fire a spread projectile shell primarily, and of course they do work with slugs as well to a degree, but it doesn't really have, you know, a right, you know, maybe if you had a rifle sighted, uh, slug gun, maybe you got something there where at least you got some sights on it, but it's certainly not going to land the same point of impact. And I don't think you're going to get a hell of a lot of accuracy out of it, and frankly, from a, any kind of reasonable standpoint for daily use, I don't see the point. You know, if you want to put 22s through your AR, well, it's cheap practice, and they get to spin all the way through the barrel, and they use the same sights, and, you know, maybe you have to adjust your sights a little bit while you're practicing and put them back to your point of zero for your 5.56 five, rounds. I get that. Same thing with your 1911. If you want to swap out, put a 22 conversion kit on the top of it, and you get cheap. I get that. A shock, I just don't get it. I don't get the point. The only place I see for these is if you have them, and you're down to a point where the only thing you have left is your shotgun and some 22 ammo, well, then you, you're not completely out of a gun. But for a single projectile out of a shotgun, why the hell would I want a 38 Special when I could have a, a freaking 72 caliber slug? You know, from a, from a Foster-style slug or 77 caliber slug, whatever it is. What purpose is there for shooting a 38 out of my shotgun? Other than, that's the only ammo I have and the only gun I have. So, long-term shit, the fan maybe get try them out, see if they work at all, and put them away in your kit somewhere, and at least it's an option if you ever get to that level. All right? Um, but I would rather, much rather shoot 22s out of a 22. Conversely, though, the things that take uh, 12-gauge, unless you shoot 20-gauge uh, ammunition in it, they work beautifully. Um, in an improved cylinder 12, uh, I've used them, and I get almost the exact same pattern I get out of an improved cylinder 20. Don't ask me to explain that. I can't do it for you, but it works. Uh, it's a little bit looser, so you might get closer to, to ending up with a improved cylinder style pattern from a 20 gauge if you used a 12 gauge with a modified choke tube. But they do work. They work exceptionally well, um, and they do allow you to do things like you got a new shooter, and you want to let them learn to shoot with your 12 gauge because that's what you have but you don't want it knocking the heck out of them. Well, you can take your field-loaded 20-gauge shells that have even less recoil, let them shoot that. Uh, you do If you ever get in a situation where you can't get a hold of 12-gauge ammunition, but you can get 20, and it does happen, it really does, 
um, you've got that option available. Uh, it, it's it's just a great way to have kind of a way to practice with lighter recoiling rounds. The other thing is for you trap shooters, you uh, you uh, sporting clay shooters and things like that. It's no secret that if you practice with a 20 and compete with a 12, you generally shoot better on your competition days because you don't get quite the advantage with a 20 as you do with a 12. So it's like handicapping yourself during practice. Well, the problem is you're shooting with two different guns. Even if you have like an under and over and you swap the barrels out, it's the same frame, uh, and they do make setups like that, it's still different. The barrel's way different. The gun swings differently. If you use these adapters in your practice... Your gun handles exactly the same way. All you're doing is handicapping yourself with the amount of shot in your shell. And you can't really pull that off very well by using, let's say, a lighter loaded 12 gauge. There's a, there's a kind of a, a downsized limit to how much shot you can, you can reduce down in a 12 gauge and get what you're expecting without, you know, jacking velocity up. Wads are only standard at certain sizes. So, you know, you can go out and shoot with a field grade 20 gauge with 7 eighths an ounce of shot. And that's a heck of a big handicap over when you go compete with an ounce and a quarter. So the shotguns I get for 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 hunting, for day-to-day -day use, for practice, for handicapping yourself, for practice for a competition, uh, for shit at the fan. If I'm out of ammo, I get them. I get them in spades. The rifle adapters, I, I don't. I don't really get them. But if you've used them and they work well, let me know in the show notes today in the comments section. Let's take another one. Sticking with the shotgun theme for a minute, I have a question here from a guy named Glenn. Glenn says. I'm no shotgun expert, and I'm always trying to understand whether I can fire slugs through a barrel with adjustable choke tubes. My gut is telling me I can't, but I want to know for sure. I have tried to find the answer to this question on the Internet, but can't seem to lock in the correct answer. I know I could get an answer from a good gun store. Uh, I, know, I know I couldn't could get an answer from a good gun store. I try to stay away from them as much as I can. I always seem to come home with a new firearm that's going to get me in trouble with the wife. Thank you, Glenn. Well, you may or may not get a good answer at a gun store. I say this all the time. Some of the best advice and some of the worst advice in the world come from people standing behind counters at gun stores or gun departments in box stores. And you probably get more uh, bad advice from the latter than the former, but I've been to dedicated gun stores where people are supposed to know what they're talking about, and I've heard them talking to other people, and I swear to God I've had to grip my teeth and walk away to not yell at the guy and call him an ass clown in front of this customer. And there's actually been cases where I've done as politely as I can because I thought the advice was actually dangerous, and said, that's not exactly the case. Let me tell you what I know about this. And then, you know, sometimes the guy gets pissed, but I'm sorry, when I think it's, it's stupid advice, I'm going to say something. Um, so you may or may not get good advice there. The advice, here's the advice I'll give you, and this is good advice because I know it works because I've done it plenty of times. You can shoot slugs through a, a gun, a shotgun, that uses removable and exchangeable choke tubes anytime you want to. There's no problem with it. The very fact that they make choke tubes that have a rifle bore at the end that are designed to give it the, that slug just one little twist as it exits the, uh, the muzzle of the shotgun tells you that It's okay to shoot slugs through an adjustable choke tube shotgun. You're going to want to absolutely make sure that that choke tube is fully seated into your shotgun and turned in with the little wrench tool they give you, depending on what manufacturer, they give you different little tools for them. You want it fully seated, but you want that anyway. Another thing that I'm going to give you guys an advice with these choke tubes, there's this, this graphite paste stuff you can buy. You can buy it any any place they sell gun cleaning equipments at all. It's a graphite lube. Lube your choke tubes up with this graphite stuff before you go out and shoot, especially shoot heavily. I have seen choke tubes damn near stuck permanently when guys go out like in a dove field or a trap field and shoot a lot of rounds really quick through them with no lubrication. And, and your, your oil-based lubricants are not really good for this application. So make sure any of your shotgun tube chokes you're using graphite lubrication on. But yeah, you can go ahead and shoot your, your foster slugs or any of your other slugs that could go through that barrel otherwise. If you could shoot the slug through a modified choke standard barrel, you could shoot it through an adjustable choke uh, modified barrel. If you could not, the gun manufacturers would be covering their butts, and every time you bought one, it would have in great big letters, do not shoot chokes through this. 
All right, that's the other thing that you can kind of bank on there. Um, next question, totally different, off-the-gun subject. Uh, I got a question about short-selling your house. Do you know how, where the money goes? I'm pretty sure I know how it works, but right now I'm pretty discouraged. The money goes back to the banks, which in turn will just write it off and ask for another bailout. I'm not sure that's right, though. At my job, there are like six people I know that are short-selling their houses. We make about eight fifty-eight thousand to sixty-two thousand a year, so I'm pretty sure they can pay their mortgages. I'm like one of those people you say hasn't really felt the recession yet, so the whole thing has me kind of discouraged about what's going on out here. I don't know, man. Just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on it. Thanks, Jack. Brian. Uh, Brian, here's the thing, man. Um, when you short sell a house, there is a loss to the bank. This is how short selling works. Let's say I owe $150,000 on a house, and I want to leave. And I, for whatever reason, I want to leave. I want to sell my house. And I get an appraiser to come in, and he says, man, the market value of your house today is $125,000. You're not going to get a dime more, and you might sweat it to get the $125,000. But you probably could, but that's what it's worth. So I go to the bank, and I say, listen, bank, I want to sell my house. And they say, fine, sell your house. We don't care. You owe us $150,000. When you sell your house, give us the $150,000. And I say, dude, I can't sell the house for $150,000. I can only sell it for a buck and a quarter. So you're going to have to take a $25,000 loss hit on this. And the bank can either say, no, go screw, pay your mortgage, or... They can agree to what's called a short sale. There's also other ways that this can be done. They can agree to let me carry $25,000 worth of debt. And that's a different kind of situation, right? But, but in a straight up, the bank has b become willing to take a partnership with you on the loss. And usually it works this way. Well, Mr. Banker, if you don't let me do this, I'm going to walk the mortgage and you're going to get stuck with it. And then you're going to have to turn around. You're going to have to sell it. And you're going to have to deal with everything. And I'm not going to fix it up to sell it. And it's going to be like crap. And you're going to sell it for 110 or less. So you're going to lose even more money. So it's kind of extorting the bank to a degree. Either you take a loss or you take a bigger loss. And they say, well, it'll screw your credit up. And you say, you know what? The way I'm headed right now, I'm not going to be able to pay for the damn thing anyway. So either I can do it with a short sale, and this is what's reasonable according to market experts, or you can choke on it, and I'll choke on it too, but there's no other option for you, Mr. Bank. And sometimes the bank looks at it and goes, yeah, they kind of got us by the curlies here, and if they really think you're going to walk, sometimes they'll agree to the short sale. So they just basically lose the money, and, and that's all that it comes down to. They take 125 against 150k mortgage. Now... In a lot of situations, they set it up where the buyer has to be approved for their financing. So they finance the new homeowner, so they mitigate their loss because they immediately start to generate cash flow off of the new homeowner where they would have gotten nothing. Will the banks get a bailout for this? I don't think so. They'll get a bailout for the people that completely walk and they can't sell the house. That's what will result in bank bailout too. The stuff that sits there. This is going to keep them solvent. This works financially in many situations. Do I like it? I don't really have any feelings about it one way or the other. I'll tell you that I have a lot more respect for the person that attempts this and either pulls it off or the bank says no, and then they walk, than the person that just walks. That makes no attempt whatsoever to deal with their bank. And I know people make attempts to deal with their bank in the best circumstances they can all the time, and the bank says no, and then they have to choke on it. And that I have no problems with. But the people out there that just live in their house, stop paying their mortgage, bankroll the money, wait six months until the bank can physically remove them from the house, then they leave and tear everything out of the house they can on the way out, and say, screw it, and they, lift, they leave flush full of cash and go rent something, I have no respect for people like that. Because you made a contract to pay back your loan. Now, you get into a bad way, or you just decide, I don't want to live here anymore, I'm not going to be held hostage by my house, and you do everything you can to deal with the bank, and the bank tells you to go screw, and you say, in the end, i got to look out for me, and I walk, that I understand. So, that's the best I can do for you on that one. Let's go ahead and take another one. This is, uh, this is an interesting question. I'm not sure exactly why you want to do this, but this comes from, uh, I think it's Graydon is the name, and uh, Graydon says, for the show. What would be a good solar system to charge 50 to 100 AA and AAA batteries? Should I consider solar and 12-volt deep charge batteries first and then use that to charge the AA's and AAA's? Please explain the how-tos, Graydon. Um, that's the only way I really know to do this practically. There are, there are little mini charge solar chargers out there that will charge, you know, a, a few uh, AA's or a few AAA's rechargeable batteries, but... 
you're talking about small scale. You want to be able to charge 50 to 100 of them. I think you're looking at running a couple chargers, each holding maybe you know 10 batteries and running through a few cycles. And you know you take a couple deep cycle batteries. You could either use um, you know you could get the uh, the ones that a lot of people use for their solar systems, the six volt ones. When you do that, you're going to run your batteries in uh, what they call a uh, a series, which is you know you run the positive off one side, the negative off the other battery, and you cross connect your batteries positive to negative. You'll want to look this up. This is very hard to explain orally, but that's called series. If I put two six volts together that way. I get a, a basically one big 12-volt battery out of those two 6-volts. So I could do, a, and then there's something called parallel, and that's basically I increase my storage capacity, and if I was using 12 volts for this, that's probably how I would set it up. So I would then cook positive to positive from one battery to the other, negative to negative from one battery to the other, and then take my positive and my negative off to you know wherever I'm running that power to. And, um, you know, you can do that either way, six volts in, in series or a couple 12 volts in parallel or a combination thereof. You could do four six volts, two in series, two in parallel, uh, and come up with one big large capacity storage 12 volt uh, power station. So you, you have to look that up. I can't do that audio. Um, so there's your batteries. And I'll mean, all you got to do to do basic solar, you need a solar panel. A charge controller between the solar panels and the batteries to make sure you don't overcharge the batteries. Uh, and then off your batteries, you need an inverter. So you have to look at how much power you're going to run. You could have anything from you know a 100-watt inverter to a 3,500-watt inverter and anything in between. And generally speaking, the higher wattage inverter you get, uh, the, uh, the, the more expensive it's going to be. Now, there's other things you have to do, like you have to look at what, are the, what is the output capacity of the batteries. Uh, generally, one big deep cycle, heavy-duty, marine-grade battery is going to have a limit of about 700 to 750 watts of output. So you go put a 1,000-watt inverter on there, you're not going to get 1,000 watts power out of it. So you have, to, you have to add up the wattage capability of your batteries and then say, okay, well, this is how many watts of power I'm capable of putting out. With what you're wanting to do, though, you're not really drawing a lot. Right, so I mean, you could probably do this with a 60 watt panel and a single marine battery and uh, one charge controller and something like you know a 750 watt or a 400 watt, 500 watt inverter or something like that. Run two chargers for your smaller batteries, and of course, then you've got another source of power beyond your double A's and triple A's. Um, I'm not really sure why you want to do that, but that's how I would do it. Um, and I think that's probably going to make the most sense. I can't see trying to rig something up that would straight charge those batteries. It just doesn't seem to make sense to me at that kind of uh, at that kind of a volume. Okay, next question comes from Chris. This is really not a survival question, but it's a financial question. Uh, Chris says, "I've been seeing these bill me later offers when I'm in the process of checking out on websites, and it really chaffs my ass." I'm in the process of checking out, so then I obviously either have the money in my checking account or the credit available on me uh, with my existing lines of credit. Why would anybody actually want to take out another line of credit unnecessarily? I'm new to the show, although a suburban urban homesteader prepper idea has been in my mind for a long time. Uh, my long-term goal is to get out into the Berkshires with a few acres under me. I've been working my way backward through your web episodes. I'm listening to show 519 as I write this. Thank you. You have a lot of great ideas. Thanks for what you're doing, Chris. Um, the Bill Me Later thing, some of them don't even have interest. Right? That, what? Yeah, No interest? Yeah, some are kind of like, just we'll just send you a bill in 30, and you can pay 30 days. It's a payment terms thing. Um, it's, in, in a business, a lot of times, you'll try to negotiate this. So let's say that I am going to do a job. I'm a construction worker. I'm a handyman construction guy. And I do things like I put in flooring and ceiling fans and stuff like that. Now, I get a job and I bid the job. And I'm going to do, go do a floor for a, a couple, just a little small job, a 10 by 10 room. And I'm going to charge them, let's say, I don't know, $1,500 for the job. Now, let's say I'm going to have to buy about $500 worth of materials to do that job. Now, if I go out and buy the materials today, I have to wait till the job is finished to make my profit. Then I have to build a customer. Hopefully, they're going to pay me, or I have to go to the customer and say it's a $500 deposit. In any way, even if I can get them to pay a deposit, now I can eat on that money till the job's done, and I collect the other 1000 bucks. If I have to use it to buy, then I'm flat back to zero. So if I can negotiate with my supplier for, let's say, net 30 terms, 
That means I can go to my supplier, get the materials. He knows I'm good for the money that I've landed a job. I can do the job, pay him 30 days later, and that means I can take your deposit, use it to live on until I complete the job. I take another $500 into my personal kitty. I take $500 from the job, and I pay off my supplier. Generally, there's very small or no interest for an arrangement like that. A lot of these bill me later options are being done that way. So why the hell would they do it? Because they think you'll come back to them more and spend more money if you have the option. Why do they do it when you're in the middle of checking out, when they know you have the means necessary to purchase? Because if you have the means necessary to purchase, you're probably a pretty good risk. And a lot of these companies that are doing this now are companies like eBay and PayPal, where they have access to your financial information. They know your cash flow. And they have control over your cash flow. Because if your PayPal, if you go delinquent in your PayPal account, that'll just take the money out. So all it really is is an attempt to get you to spend more money. That's it. Because it's easier to spend money you don't have than to spend the money you do have. So this is like people are backing off of credit, and merchants are saying, how do we get people to buy more stuff? We'll give them a bill me later option. That's what's going on there. That's why I don't like it. I don't like anything that makes it easier for you to part with your money psychologically. I'm fine with you spending your money on anything you want. I just want you to be sure you really want to do it before you spend the money. And the closer you get to your money, the less likely you are to let go of it. It's so easy to spend money you haven't even earned yet. Very hard to spend money that you worked hard for and just got into your hand today. Alright, let's go ahead and take another question. Uh, I was wondering if you could cover a question about raising rabbits for release. I recently bought a quarter acre homestead in the suburbs of Portland. My friend owns 27 acres in the hills that border his cousin's 46 acres. I've expressed an interest in breeding rabbits for the purpose of protein, but also releasing them on his property to create some close rabbit hunting grounds. He's interested in the idea, but hesitant on the impact on his lambs. Any thoughts? Thank you for all you do, and keep on keeping on. Um, Jamie, uh, here's the thing about that, man. Uh, probably illegal. Probably don't do it. Uh, maybe you could, but I don't know. If it was your 46 acres, and you didn't have any other third party in this you wanted to try it, I might be a little bit more like, eh, you can go ahead and do it. The first thing is, what kind of rabbits do you plan on releasing on this guy's property? And are those rabbits native to the region, and are there already rabbits like that on the property? Let's leave the illegality out of it for a minute. So if there's cottontails on the property, and you're going to somehow come across cottontails, breed them in captivity, and release some of those cottontails into the wild on this property, not that big of a harm or a foul. Other than it probably is illegal and you're looking at a game animal and you're looking at going to jail if they catch you and things like that. But, hey, I'm for liberty and if you want to, fine. Uh, you do run some risk of re introducing disease into the wild population, but it's probably less likely that your rabbits are going to be diseased uh, than the rabbits there. And if they're, you know, cottontails and cottontails or jackrabbits and jackrabbits or hares and hares and they're the same species... Whatever they get, they get, and it's probably something that they have to deal with anyway, and it's part of survival of the fittest, and go on. And then you gotta say, you know, how big a difference is this really than going around and letting ringneck pheasants go, which game departments from Pennsylvania to South Dakota and down to Texas do every year. And, and gun clubs used to do this on their own. That's when pheasant hunting was good. Gun clubs would just raise their own pheasants in a cage and let them go. Rabbits have a tendency to be more damaging to crops and things like that than a pheasant. That's a little bit of it there. And then they're a little bit more successful at live, you know, natural reproduction. So you could have a population issue. But if there's rabbits already there and you're kind of boosting the population, eh. But if there's rabbits already there, then the best thing you can do is increase rabbit habitat. And the easy thing to do with that is go around to different tree lines and bordering places where the rabbits are and create brush piles. Do that, and you'll probably get a significant increase in the local rabbit population without violating the law, and you're just doing game management now. I don't think it's really a good idea. Definitely, if you're going to raise like New Zealand rabbits and, and, and Dutch rabbits and these things that are designed for meat, fryers, the best ones to raise in captivity for meat, um, they have no business being released into the wild in non-native habitat. So don't do that at all. Sorry, I can't be a little bit more encouraging, uh, but I, uh, you know, I gotta tell you, I gotta call it like I see it here. Next email is from Andrew, and it's just a link to an article called Irish, Irish Debt Crisis Could Kill the Euro. 
I'm going to read the article to you, and then I'm going to give you a different. I'm going to read part of the article to you, and then I'm going to give you a different way of looking at this. I think everybody's look. Let me just read the article first. The European Union faces a crisis of survival over its deepening debt problems. Its president has warned. In an astonishing intervention, Herman Van Rumprov, Rumpry said that the financial meltdown engulfing Ireland, Greece, and other EU countries could spark the collapse of the entire European project. We must all work together in order to survive with the Eurozone, because if we do not survive with the Eurozone, we will not survive with the European Union. His comments came yesterday as Chancellor George Osborne traveled to Brussels last night to join deadlock talks on a possible $70 billion bailout for Ireland, which could cost the British taxpayers $12 billion. And it keeps going. Well, it looks like the Irish today, from what I saw on Fox News, are actually going to get $130 billion uh, from the entire European community to keep them solvent and to keep them going and keep them floating. I think we're looking at this the wrong way. My fellow Americans, listen to me now with an open mind. I want the euro to fail. I want Ireland to fail. I want everybody to fail. All, everybody in the eurozone. I want the euro dead and I want the European Union dead. And right now, all over America, the people that listen to this show and all over the world, their jaws are draping and they're going, oh my God, Jack, you're praying for the meltdown of the economy of the world. No! I'm praying for the sovereignty of the individual nations of Europe to once again be sovereign nations. I want Germany to be Germany. I want Italy to be Italy. I want France to be France. I want Ireland to be freaking Ireland. Just like the British, who sat in the middle of this thing, helped it along and said, yeah, we're not going to do that. We don't use the euro. Right? I want this thing dead. And I'll give you another reason I want it dead. This is the experiment. There's no conspiracy theory talk here, folks. Listen to me, open-minded. This is the experiment. Can we make a unified currency work? Does it work better than an individual national currency? How do you get the Amero in place? When the whole North America's falling apart and Europe's doing really good, you say, look, see, this works better. How can you do that when even if there's problems in North America, they're worse in Europe? How can you do it if the euro falls apart, the European Union falls apart, and all these nations reclaim their individual sovereignty, the way our individual states should here in the United States, and say, the hell with this, get your crap out of our nation, I'm sorry, we're going to run the Netherlands our way, or we're going to run Germany our way. Not warmongering or anything, peaceful coexistence as we've had for years and years now. But we're just not going to participate in this whole miniature global government anymore. Then you don't get the Amero, right? Then you don't get, you know, a, cur a common currency for Asia Pacific. The other side, they could use this as an excuse for a global currency. But it's much harder to make a case for a global currency when your little mini project falls apart on its ass, isn't it? So, when I hear the euro is failing in Greece, the euro is failing in Ireland, the euro is going to fail here, I am happy. I know it sounds crazy, but I want the whole thing to go back to individual sovereignty. I want Belgium completely sovereign from France. I don't want people in France telling the Belgians how to live. Just like I don't want people in Mexico telling Americans how to live. Just like I don't want Americans telling Canadians how to live. If it's good enough for us, isn't it good enough for them? Now, if two nations want to merge, I don't want anybody merging with me, but if they both decide and their people are for it and they decide that, you know, I don't know, Portugal and Spain are going to merge. The hell, we're so close, let's do it. And I say they should, I don't want them to. But if they decide, it's their own business. Fine. But forcing all of these nations into this conglomeration of the, of the Eurozone and the European Union? Come on. We know what that's a step towards. So, when you hear all this stuff failing, you think, oh, God, no. Hey, maybe we're taking a few steps backwards. And maybe a few steps backwards are actually a good idea. Bet you haven't heard that on any major news network anywhere. Bet you haven't heard that in many places at all. If you have heard anybody else say this, I'd like to know who they are. I'd like to see what they're doing, so please let me know about it. And I'm being dead serious here. I'm not trying to claim credit for this. I want to know anybody else that's been talking to people and looking at it that way. Even if you as an individual have been looking at it that way, chime in on the show notes or shoot me an email. I want to hear from you on this. Let's go ahead and take another one. Okay, this email comes from Yolanda. Yolanda says, What do I do if I don't have a bug-out location? 
Uh, my sister and I recently moved from New Jersey to West Virginia in May. We live in an apartment, and I started listening in August. Excellent show. I started stocking up and building bug-out bags, and what has bugged me for a while is that if we have to leave, I really don't have any ideas as far as where to go. Any ideas? Thanks. Uh, tough situation. A lot of people are in the exact same situation that you are. Uh, having a bug-out location, an actual place to go, really requires having some level of financial investment, both to own the place and to have materials and, and, and things to stock up at the place. So what's the best thing you can do? Is you can modulize your prep, modularize your preps in your apartment so that as much as possible can fit in your car along with you and your sister or your two cars if you both have cars, which is probably the case, and that your bug out location becomes your vehicle as best as you can make it. And then that's the best, if that's the best you can do, that's fine because remember, everybody's in a process here. That's step one. Because step two might be, hey, maybe we can afford a little acre of ground somewhere out in the sticks somewhere, and at least we have a place we can go, and maybe we can afford a couple tents, and then maybe we can start to stockpile a few things there even underground if that's if that's your kind of thing. Or maybe it's, hey, you know what, maybe eventually we can actually buy a little house somewhere and get further out. Or maybe your next step isn't even any of that. Maybe it's just to go from apartment living to home living. and you, So there's always steps there, but at least the bug-out bags are a good step, What else can go in the vehicle? How much can you carry? Load it up. Actually test it. Because if nothing else, at least you can go wait out events. And sleeping in a car sucks. You know, sleeping with a tent sucks. And in it, let's, let's be clear here about the, the, the other side of this. In the end of the world as we know it scenarios, the big ones, uh, this is a very risky way to play things. Because you're kind of um, a vagabond and you don't have... Uh, a lot of staying power, and you only have so much duration you can make it, and the streets are probably clogged anywhere anyway, and you're going to have to jump early for this to work, and you're not likely to jump early if you don't have any place to go to that's prepared. So in that scenario, this doesn't work very well. But, hey, you got to leave because there's a chlorine link at the chemical plant down the street, and you can come back in a week. This works. And most of the more probable disasters that are short in duration, that model works for Even a couple tents, and again, bugging out to the National Forest or a campground during the shit hitting the fan, globally or nationally, not a good idea. For a regional disaster, it works. So that's step one. Uh, another thing you can do is just start looking, do you know anybody anywhere else in the country, and, you know, four to five hours away or more, away from that eastern seaboard? Right, because if there's bad problems, the, the more populated you go, the worse it's going to be. But if you know anybody out the other direction or south or what have you, or somewhere a little bit more secure, coming to an agreement with all we have is an apartment, but if something happens there, you can come here. And if something happens here, we can go there. And having that kind of double-up agreement, that's another option. That's the best I can do in that situation. Just remember, don't be discouraged. You're taking steps towards the goal. This is not... This is all you can do. This is all you can do for now. And once you get that done, start looking at what you can do next. How can you improve on it? Everybody has to tailor this stuff to their own lives. Last one today comes from Linda. Linda says, In the past I've purchased five-gallon food-grade buckets, but I wondered if I could use Home Depot orange five-gallon buckets instead. I always use Mylar sacks in the buckets. Thanks. Um, Linda, there's no reason you can't. All right? Uh, Mylar's going to keep out most of the light. It's going to seal things, um, but I still wouldn't do it. There's a reason that most people recommend food-grade buckets. They do cost a little bit more, but you're storing food in there that could be your lifeblood, so you want to give it the best protection possible. I've used the orange buckets and the gray buckets from Lowe's for things in the garden and stuff like that where it doesn't really matter. Here's what I've learned about them. When exposed to UV light for any length of time, they start to become brittle. Usually one season is all I get out of them before if I have a little dirt or water in them, they just basically shatter. And I've taken some of the food-grade buckets I've gotten with crap in them like, um, you know, like pickles, and where I've just gone to heck with it, I'm not even going to try to salvage this bucket. I'm just going to use it, and those last a lot longer in that environment. So I know that the structural integrity is one issue in of itself. Food-grade buckets are also better at keeping out light. Um, understand, though, when, you, when you're packing stuff in buckets and it's vacuum-sealed, and then the vacuum-sealed stuff's in mylar, the main purpose of the bucket is physical protection. It's to help keep out rodents and things like that. And to be one more level, if one of your packages, you know, bursts, 
and you've got an inside mylar. Well, that's good. If the mylar ruptures, then it's inside the bucket. So it's adding a level of protection around it. So could you do it? Yes. Do I recommend it? No. With that, uh, I think we're done for the questions today. I wanted to uh, to take this time to remind you guys of what's coming as far as you know, good stuff. This is kind of a special week. Uh, like I said, I'm going to have Keith Snow on for you guys tomorrow. And he's going to talk about stuff for Thanksgiving. And we're going to go into Thanksgiving. We're going to have Thanksgiving uh, survival's view of Thanksgiving on Wednesday. Uh, all the stuff I talked about. But we also kind of go into officially entering the holidays between now and January. That doesn't mean we turn away from prepping. In fact, it's probably a good time to really stay focused on it. Um, it's going to be the time of year where it starts to start getting even colder than it has, even if you live in a relatively cold region. The gardens either are, you know, you're either gardening in a, in a greenhouse by now, or if you're in the south like me, maybe you're still pulling stuff out of the garden. There's all kinds of things that sort of start to shut down and go to sleep and make survival a little tougher, especially if you're in a hard way in the winter than in the summer and the spring and the fall. But that said, it is a great time to be getting together with family. So make sure you're doing that this year. And make sure you're working really hard, not just at being prepared for disaster, but preparing your family for success. If we put those two worlds together, what we get is an extremely redundant lifestyle, above all, that is worth living. Because I'm not here just to help you survive. I'm here to help you to survive in a way where you actually enjoy your life. That's what I mean when I say, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Revolution is you